It's only entertainment. Welcome back to the Talking Edge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst, and this is your Cannabis Business Podcast. We're here live at MJ BlizzCon. I've got a couple of awesome guests. If you can state your name and company and your title for the record. Sure. I'm Sunday Seafried. I am the CEO of Safe Harbor Financial. And I'm Dan Rhoda. I'm the COO of Safe Harbor Financial, uh, co-founder of Abaca, which merged into Safe Harbor earlier this week. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, what do you guys do? I mean, for the audience who hasn't heard about Safe Harbor Financial, what is it? We actually provide access to reliable banking services across the country for all of our clients and have done that since 2015. And so, you know, the biggest factor that they have, you know, in, in banking is that they can't get an account, keep an account. We have proven that reliability can be had through Safe Harbor. Okay. And there's a, a recent merger or acquisition? Yes. Um, what was that and, and why did it happen? Want to go ahead and shoot? Sure. So, uh, Safe Harbor recently acquired and merged Abaca into the Safe Harbor financial family, uh, which brings Abaca's fintech platform into the Safe Harbor network and allows us to uh, further consolidate and improve cannabis banking uh, really nationwide. Okay. Why do we need banking? It seems pretty obvious to us. There's some people that may not understand uh, in other countries or regions. What's the impact or importance of what you've been up to? I think the greatest importance is that banking is the determining factor between a legal market, a compliant market, and the black market. And I think that's the biggest thing we do for the industry is legitimize that they are legally licensed entities allowed to do business. And that's how you can get your money into the system. And if you're in the black market, the whole idea about banking is that you black you, you, you block the black market from access to the system. And I think that's really going to help the, the industry in the long run. It, yeah, there's a lot of um, non-compliance. There's robberies up and down the West Coast and murders due to the inability to have your traditional financing and lack of cash. It's not going to stop it, but hopefully prevent it or drastically reduce those occurrences. Um, from a compliance standpoint, is cannabis is highly compliant. So, is this another burden? I'm laughing because I don't think it is. It's a, it's a loaded question. Is this a, is this a burden to the industry, or is this just a necessity that they're going to have to figure out? I think it's both. I think as long as banking is something that they don't have easy access to, and the black market exists, it's a burden. The, the extra bank secrecy laws that apply to the cannabis industry require financial institutions to do more work, which puts more work on the cannabis industry itself. But I can tell you from our history and everything that I've seen, compliance is not a problem with the cannabis industry. They already work under that regulatory environment already, so if they want to keep their bank account, which is really important to them, they comply and they get used to it. I think down the road, if full legalization occurs, it might get easier, but they would have to change the Bank Secrecy Act in order to do that, and I don't think that will happen. What kind of compliance did you, or, or due diligence did you have to go through in an M&A like this? It seems like a traditional M&A, but a lot of cannabis people just see these arbitrary valuations of 420 million. How did you come up with 
the, the numbers and, and how do you go about finding those strategic partners and how did you go about that due diligence in order to make it all work? Dan chime in on this. He did. He's a lawyer by trade, so Perfect. he actually helped do a lot of it. Sure. So uh, the Abaca acquisition uh, is one that I'd say would be pretty easy to value, as uh, we're a growth stage fintech, and growth stage fintechs are valued based on some multiple of the revenue. And so the due diligence process is validating the strength and quality of that revenue and the strength of the contracts that uh, that secure it. And so uh, it was as far as diligence processes go. Really, frankly fairly painless from this perspective. There was certainly a lot of work and uh, legal advisors on both sides definitely did a fair amount of lifting to get us across the finish line. But uh, it's really as simple as proving out the uh, the intellectual property is there, is real, can be conveyed, is, is proprietary and assignable, uh, and validating that the revenue is something that can uh, continue to accrue to the benefit of the new entity. And so, uh, you know, from the perspective of being in the shoes of a founder who was part of the team that was acquisition number one coming in the door and now being part of the team that's uh, out here, uh, as you can see in this uh, in this marketplace, looking for maybe what opportunity number two and number three are going to be. Um, I'm pretty proud of the process that was run. Six weeks after DSPAC, uh, the acquisition of Abaca was closed and finalized. And in fact, my uh, first official day as an employee of Safe Harbor was here at MJ BizCon. So uh, been great to be on one side of the table there, and I'm really excited to now be on the other. On the other side of that, you asked, how do you find those partners? And I think it's really important. We see the the, the whole cannabis industry already starting to consolidate. What we're now seeing is that financial service providers who have bootstrapped it for years are doing the same thing because of competitive positioning and, and making sure that there's longevity in the company. So we are happy to find other pioneers, bring them to the table. We don't have to train them. We create a pool of talent to help us scale our business even faster. There's some you know, state regulators that are more challenging than others. I think New York and Washington, the Department of Financial Institutions, the DFI is, is fairly strict in those regions. And do you find it to be an advantage over some of these other financial service providers being more traditional in finance? Does it help to get into those markets easier than those guys? I think what's helped us get into those markets and be a front runner in those new markets is the fact that we have the expertise. We've hired officers with expertise who have been able to go in. We've worked with regulators for years across the country. We've trained regulators. We've, we've helped bring that education to them. So we like to enter those markets on a very educational level, get them comfortable with Safe Harbor, and then we're not, we're, we're not a stranger coming into the state. So I think they trade the trade-off there is education for access. Is there even room for those financial service providers come legalization? Are they going to be just obsolete? I, I can't imagine that people are going to want to use a system that popped up to alleviate the lack of banking, and then when banking comes, why would they stick around? Well, I think my best example is is that it's a cash-intensive business, and I don't see that changing very early in the, in the next 10 years, I think. Uh, just like money service businesses, cannabis will continue to have problems getting access to banking. If you were to do a Google search on money service businesses and banking, you will see it's hard for them. That would be like casinos, check cashers, liquor stores, gas stations, grocery stores. To get a bank account and keep a bank account is difficult for them, and those are legal markets. So you bring cannabis into a market, cash intensive, growing 
like crazy. Black market on top of that, it's not going to be easy. I am seeing already financial institutions exit because of the regulatory pressure, because they don't want to mix the cannabis business in with their normal client base. They need to separate that risk, it's so specialized. So we're not seeing a lot of financial institutions get in and stay in. We're seeing them get in, get tired of regulatory pressure, and then they're coming to us and saying, can you help us and take this outside the financial institution? I would say the strength of the legacy market in the markets like California and now New York in particular is something that's going to present an ongoing challenge for financial institutions in this space long after legalization. And so uh, well, there are a variety of uh, financial firms and solutions out here in the space now and uh, they're somewhere where you would certainly be right to question their utility in a post-legalization environment. Uh, those who have really developed a core competency around compliance, around anti-money laundering practices and Bank Secrecy Act. Uh, compliance, those are the ones that are going to continue to be useful and relevant in a post-legalization environment as things evolve. I'm going to try to limit this to a two-part question and not make it three or four parts like I usually do. Uh, so I'm curious about the news that came out yesterday with the historic bill uh, uh, passing in the Senate to allow for more research. If, if cannabis is descheduled, is that the best outcome, or is there a Safe Banking Act or a particular other bill that would be more of an improvement than just getting out of the way? You want to start and I'll finish. There are multiple perspectives to this, but on a fundamental level, uh, the cannabis plant should not be illegal. Uh, people should not be thrown in jail over possession of a plant that has so many uh, useful benefits. And so, uh, you know, starting with that as the baseline, I think ultimately the work will not be done from a reform perspective until we do achieve full legalization. Uh, but in terms of what is best and safest for the financial system, it would certainly seem prudent that whatever reform we get does continue to maintain a regulatory environment where there is oversight over cannabis businesses uh, to ensure we are protecting against money laundering and we are not supporting the illicit market, which money from the illicit market, uh, there's a huge conduit from that directly into terrorist financing, for example. And so the financial institutions, especially post 9-11, have had an obligation to be part of our country's first line of offense and defense in the fight against terrorism. And uh, the cannabis industry and the financial institutions that serve the cannabis industry will likely to continue, are likely to continue to have a role in doing so, uh, I think, for several years post-legalization. And, and as far as the best outcome, I think legalization definitely is the best outcome. But at this point in time, safe banking, we've been doing it eight years, no safe banking, right? Nothing's going to change for us except that they won't prosecute us simply for banking the cannabis industry. That's a good thing. Otherwise, the elephant in the room remains, as Dan pointed out, bank secrecy, and that won't change regardless of legalization. And that whole regulation is about making sure not one illicit dollar goes into the financial system. And that won't be eliminated until we really minimize the black market out there. It's going to end up, I think, the way the DOJ is going to see it and law enforcement is they're going to find those companies who don't have a bank account and say, why don't you have a bank account? And I think that's going to be the legitimizer between legal and illegal. Do you guys go above and beyond what you're required to? I mean, KYC has been a thing for a long time to know your customer. Is there like a CKYC where it's the cannabis know your customer that's even harder or more comprehensive? Um, do you foresee any 
additional regulatory burdens on yourself as regulation opens up and, and becomes more normalized? Definitely there's more KYC for cannabis. And that was part of the FinCEN guidance in 2014. You have to go above and beyond whatever you do now for any other business. And, and whereas on a regular business, you might touch base and do an annual performance review. On cannabis, you have to do it quarterly. You have to be in touch with them all the time, making sure there's, you know, licenses are in place and that their operations are legitimate and they're not changing officers and they're not changing ownership because the market's changing so quickly, it's hard to keep up with them. So yes, I think that, um, you know, the KYC is always going to be thorough as it is with any business account, but the, the relief on financial institutions will not happen because what people think is, well, all these SARs we have to file is, is the problem. But the fact of the matter is we file a thousand reports a month, 70% of them have to do with the money, not the SARs. That isn't going to change unless FinCEN comes to the table and bank secrecy itself gets changed. And since 9-11, it's only gotten harder and harder every year. What about uh, the difference between now and when the Cole memo was initially pulled? The only difference is time. Yet it seems like the risk is still there, but people don't care. It, it, is that a is that a correct like interpretation of it? I would describe it as academic. And if you had uh, a scenario in which you had an attorney general come in that didn't want to be more aggressive, uh, and certainly we were many of us were concerned that Jeff Sessions was perhaps that individual, and we're pleased to find out that that was not the case. Retracting the Cole memo was really the only significant uh, action that was taken. Uh, but this academic risk does exist that if an attorney general came in that wanted to get aggressive against cannabis businesses and the financial institutions that serve them, they absolutely could. And so uh, that risk uh, hangs over all of our heads that are in this space and something that does need to be managed for effectively. That's awesome. Uh, this has been a great interview. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for five years. Uh, so, I'm, I, and Dan, you're not too shabby yourself. Thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. So I'm really happy uh, for you guys' progress and, and, and all your success. Um, having said that, I think we got to wrap this up. So if, if anyone is interested in the, in the services that you provide, where can they get more information? They can go to our website anytime. That's SHF shfinancial.org and we can do an inquiry there and we've got plenty of employees now that will be responding immediately or they can look Dan up on LinkedIn I was going to say we're, uh, we're very active on social media find us like on that. LinkedIn find my us first delegation <laughs> and uh, we're out here at MJ BizCon for the rest of the week you can find us in booth 2114 as well awesome alright uh, and then one last time Dan Sunday if you could just state your name and your title for the record Sunday Seafree CEO, Safe Harbor Financial. Dan Rhoda, COO, Safe Harbor Financial. All right, I think with that, we're going to have to hold this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Dan, and Sunny from Safe Harbor Financial for being on the Talking Edge. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Josh McKean. This is the Talking Edge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or don't, don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got.